0: All right, so last week we looked at the uh, German liberal theologian Albrecht Ritschel. Now, um, uh, while Schleiermacher established the foundation of liberal theology, Ritschel, as we said, built the house. He refined the theology in the form that we know it today. Now, Ritschel was born to a Lutheran pastor who eventually became the bishop of Prussia. And so, like Schleiermacher, Ritschel knew Uh, the uh, solid biblical understanding. He was uh, raised in a biblical household, and so he understood biblical theology and its orthodoxy. Um, And eventually he attended the same university that Schleiermacher did as well, of Halle. But unlike Schleiermacher, Richel did not suffer with doubts during childhood, but was rather influenced when he began attending university. Now, also like Schleiermacher, Ritchell sought to defend Christianity, as he saw it, from modern critics. He somewhat saw himself as one who would take the theological torch of Schleiermacher and further his cause. And specifically, he would concentrate to resolve the conflict between what he saw as the two types of knowledge, the religious and secular science. Now, his method for distinguishing between these two was to say that scientific knowledge deals with what he says are metaphysical or factual judgments. In other words, science tells us things of how they really are in the real world. However, the bare facts do not help us to navigate the emotional side of our existence. What are we here to do with morals? That is why we need religious knowledge, he says. It is the knowledge that helps us make, he says, Value judgments. That is one's assessment of something that's good or bad in terms of one's own standards and priorities. Now this for uh, at this point this is where things start to get a little murky for ritual because he'll say religion should be making metaphysical claims or in other words claims about reality for they live outside of the realm of physical reality. Again this is uh, his, his uh, inspiration from Schleiermacher and Schleiermacher from uh, the Enlightenment uh, philosophers. Again, try to make that dichotomy between the real and the supernatural. And really, it, it, it's the, what is the real and the fake in a lot of instances for them. So, for example, Christians shouldn't be making claims about the nature of God's existence, he says. No, instead, religion's goal is to guide our moral sensibilities, This is something that science simply cannot do. So religion must stay in its lane, stay in the moral lane, the ethical lane. Just as science cannot tell you how to live an upright and moral life, he said that religion can't tell you about the true nature of existence. And specifically, he said religion's goal, as he put it, was to pursue, he said, the kingdom of God as revealed specifically in Jesus Christ. Now, he says, now, how do we know that? Well, it's not through the teaching of of the Bible directly or by natural theology. Again, what we're able to ascertain from God by looking at the natural world. No, instead, he says that we know that the highest good, he says, is to pursue the kingdom of God as revealed through Jesus Christ because, he says, of the collective experience of all Christians at all times. Of course, you can think, and ask this question, who are these Christians that Rachel talks about? How would he define a Christian in the first place? Now, as we know, people who claim the name of Christian have polar opposite views on very important subjects, right? Even the, the nature of Christ, the nature of salvation. So how would he define that? Many would take the name of Christian, but uh, would have polar opposite views in the, on, on these things. So really, you start to think, is there anything like heresy in ritual's view? Does heresy exist in ritual's view? Is Christian a catch-all term? If not, how can you reconcile then a, a collective experience that is consistent? Well, to solve this dilemma, Rachel says that we must find what he calls the collective experience of all Christians, is when we set out to find who the historical Jesus truly was. Because he says we can't just assume that the Jesus in the Bible is the, is the Jesus that really was. Again, he's undermining, starting the, the process of undermining biblical authority. So based on his framework, Rachel's theology is basically summed up in a few points. As we already stated, his focus was on the kingdom of God, but this was opposed to focusing on God specifically. He says that humanity must not be united by the historical gospel of Jesus Christ. No, instead, he says, that we should be united by the principle of love. For ritual, nothing is higher than love. God is love, really, and it becomes the preeminent Christian doctrine for ritual. But here's where things get strange. Now, what makes his language strange is that he denies that saying God is love is defining God. Now, as we already said, he's already denied that God can be defined. He says that true and immutable definitions of things only fall in the sphere of observable science, not in the moral or religious domain. So instead, he says that by saying God is love, he's making a value judgment. Again, these are, again, he's uh, delving into the realm of the uh, subjective, right? Things that may be true for you, but may not be true for me, right? So you can start seeing what he's doing here.
1: But yet Christianity is the collective of all of that.
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly. So it, that's why, you're, as, as we're having to see, you can't have very many tenets, right? Because, uh, basically, he's, he's saying... That He would say that, for, for example, uh, God is love. No Christian, I think, in any tradition would deny that. But the question is, becomes, what is their definition of love? Of right. God is love, right? That's where it starts to get murky. <laughs> but he says the kingdom of God, as he defines it, is not just the most important goal for men to pursue, he says. But he said this is God's goal. This is God's goal, is that the kingdom of God, may be pursued. Now, we know that this is diametrically opposed to the biblical worldview because what is the end goal of all things? Is it the kingdom of God? No, it's God himself, right? The glory of God. What does Paul tell the Corinthians? He says, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So everything ends up at that purpose. Everything we do is for the glory of God, right? The kingdom of God in the biblical sense is the means by which we are able to commune with God and able to give God glory. That's the end goal of the kingdom of God is that we are reconciled unto God, right? That because, because of sin, we were separated from God. And so Jesus came to bring about the kingdom of God that we might be reunited with God so that is it's, in other words kingdom of God is the means not the ends right yes yes the actual means of being able to
1: communicate with
0: one another yes that's exactly right. you cannot love uh, uh, your brother correctly unless you have that understanding of who God is and, and this is this is why we can't deny that we can defi- we can't define God because God as we know has defined himself to us where in his word right what we know about God comes from his word. So you can see for Rachel, though, he doesn't have this understanding. He doesn't, uh, first of all, he doesn't even believe that scripture, uh, in, uh, is, as we're, uh, we're going to see, is really uh, trustworthy, um, and it's not in, the, not in the metaphysical sense, but again, this is, uh, this is something we're jumping ahead. Basically, he says that the kingdom of God is code for love is all. Or, as I said last week, actually, love is God, right? The most important thing is not God in his glory, but love, as He defines it. right? So secondly, though, Rachel's view of sin is defined simply as, he says, selfishness. He denies the doctrines of original sin and total depravity. This is his statement. Neither Jesus nor any writer of the New Testament hints or presupposes that through natural generation sin is made general. The passages of the Old Testament which approach this view are not doctrinal and no law for the uh, Christian conception. So here he's making two, here's two issues that we must take with ritual here. First of all, he's making a dichotomy between the Old and New Testaments as almost if there. Uh, polar opposites, right? That they're diametrically opposed to one another. And we're actually going to see in our next um, uh, 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 theologian, Harnock, he's going to take this a level further. Uh, But uh, just hold on to that thought for a moment. So he's making a dichotomy here between the Old and New Testament. But second, he's claiming that the New Testament writers had no conception of original sin. But we know that's flat out false, right? Because in the New Testament it is explicitly uh, stated uh, and is, is laid out very clearly. Now, while Jesus himself did not explicitly lay out the doctrine of original sin, as we looked at last time in John 3 3, he makes the statement that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, what's the whole purpose of being born again, right? It's because, as Paul says, we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. This is, we are born in sin, right? Original sin. This is not something that's negotiable, right? We are totally depraved because of our sin nature, which we inherited by Adam. And that's what Paul says. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because sinned. So in Adam, we all sinned. We all fell, right? And therefore we all inherited the sin nature. No, the scripture is clear that Adam sinned and we inherited his sin nature. So that's why Christ had to come, right? That's the important, the the second part of that section in Romans chapter 5, is that while through one man sinned and all fell, through Jesus Christ many through him, are going to be represented, right? The reason why we are saved is because Christ was able to live a perfect life on our behalf and then die on our behalf, right? So if it didn't happen through the federal headship of Adam, it couldn't happen through the federal headship of Jesus Christ, right? And so you can see why these doctrines like original sin and federal headship are essential, Our salvation is not even possible without it, right? If we were to stand our own merits, we'd be lost, right? Now, Ritchell, unlike his spiritual father, Schleiermacher, he denies, though, the biblical witness and sees sin as mere selfishness that people can overcome if they merely will themselves to do better. Again, what does this sound like? This sounds like the Enlightenment philosophers, doesn't it? Pick your up. Uh, pick yourself up. By your bootstraps, you can do it. You just have have to have the moral fortitude, right? That's what he again. You can see the inspiration. This is more the philosophy of men than the the doctrines of Scripture, right? You can see the influence there,
1: well, Would you say that's uh, semi pelagianism
0: Oh, it's full out plagiarism. <laughs> it's full out Pelagianism because what he's saying is that as we'll, was, we'll kind of uh, uh, hold that for a second, but he, uh, just it is full-out Pelagianism, because semi-Pelagianism means that you, you're helping God in the process, cooperation with God, but there's still oh, this sense of... Right, that's it. right, that's right. But you're going to see this is full-out Pelagianism. So it's important to see that his understanding of sin was dependent on his quest to discover who the historical Jesus was. And through his inquiry, he determined that the sinlen- sinlessness of Jesus is not in conflict with his human nature. Now, while Rachel never explicitly states this in his writings, he's strongly implying that Jesus was merely a man who lived an amazing life of selflessness and left us a supreme example on how to live.
1: I guess Robert Moore is supposed read book.
0: Exactly. He becomes nothing more than an example because really no, Jesus Christ, you know, he, he, he left his divinity, right? Jordan, and that's mm-hmm. just
1: demonic. I mean, that it is. I mean, you see it this time and time again where they, the heretic will, will strip Jesus of his glory mm-hmm. and they will say, he was just a man and we can be just like him.
0: That's right. Well, and see, he's going so far to say that Jesus couldn't have lived this life that he showed that we can live too if there was original sin, because he'd be corrupt from the beginning. So he's denying it because of, again, he thinks he's protecting Jesus. Again, but in effect what he's doing is he's he is stripping Jesus of everything that's unique about him. And, and right?
1: he's discounted the virgin birth. That's
0: right. He has discounted everything of the historical understanding of Jesus completely. Completely. He's, he's stripping him of his complete identity instead of saying that Jesus was sinless because he was God incarnate, he says that Jesus was sinless because he had all figured out, right? And he's here to show us how to do it. You can live that perfect life too, he says. But beyond the initial blasphemy of denying that Jesus is not divine is that he rejects the orthodox doctrines of original sin and total depravity. Ritual by saying that sin is mere selfishness is stating that sin is not against God, but what? Against other people. For if loving one another is the primary good, then the opposite of that is selfishness, right? The primary evil is loving yourself over others. Now, while we do agree that selfishness is certainly a sin because it's self-loving idolatry, right? Right? Scripture is abundantly clear, as we looked at last week, as we close, that it's not against primarily people, but against primarily who? It's against God himself, as David declares. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And so, uh, I'm sorry, that, that, that was kind of a copied on there, so it should end right there, uh, blameless in your judgment. Now, we know that we can sin against others, but they are merely secondary victims of the crime, right? God's law was the one that you violated, right? When we violate laws of men, those laws of men are based on what? The laws of God, right? So first and foremost, we violate God's law. And so therefore, recompense must be made to God and God first. That's why Paul emphatically said, that the wages of sin is death, right? Because uh, every time we sin, God's holiness is violated. That is why that unless Jesus' death uh, was more than a mere example, then we are lost, right? And we will suffer the wrath of God. So Jesus' divinity is essential to salvation. Now, Rachel's legacy was one, they further refine the liberal gospel as a God who cannot be defined, a sin that can be overcome by mere human strength and a Jesus without a Bible, the source, uh, a source who defines him and he that legitimizes his own divine authority. Now, our figure this week, as we will look, is Adolf Harnack. Now, if Schleiermacher established the foundation of liberal theology and Rachel built the house, Harnack would be like the real estate agent who put the house on the market. He was the first liberal popularizer. In fact, later in his life, he was involved and led numerous societies in which spread the liberal theology like wildfire. He really was getting it out of Germany and out of Europe and spreading it everywhere. Now, a bit of a background on Harnack: He was born in Tartu, Russia, which is modern-day Estonia, And again, like his two predecessors, he came from a very solid theological background. His father was a Lutheran professor of practical and systematic theology and was known for his extensive work on analyzing the theology of Martin Luther. In fact, he published a book on Martin Luther's theology. So again, he would have been well acquainted with orthodoxy, right, and the doctrines of grace. Now, his father's pious loyalty to Luther's ideas were combined with his scholarly approach to the religion, uh, study of religion, and would make a profound impact on his understanding of theology as a vocation. He saw himself as a churchman his entire life. So the young Adolf dedicated himself to the study of church history, and he had already expressed in an early age the importance of studying the basic languages and the original sources. Now, when he was 17, Harnack wrote to his friend that he wanted to study theology, But he said, not in order to be given the ready made statements of the faith. He's not just going to accept those. Again, you can see this rebellious spirit from a very young age. But he says, rather, in order to understand every statement of the faith before making his own. Yes, new and novel. He was set out to do something new and novel and to be, uh, uh, really, to be a popularizer. I mean, you can see this from the very beginning. He's going to be a self promoter right? Something that we very well know today. A lot of people like to be self-promoters, right? So in 1869, he entered the University of Dorpat to study theology, and then in 1872, he then went to the University of Leipzig, where his professors insisted that he study original sources and then would study textual criticism, Now, at Leipzig, Harnack learned the application of historical method in theological study, which prepared him to receive F.C. Bowers and Albert Ritchell's historical approaches to theology. So you can see that his foundation is being laid, right? He was out to find himself, and what does he find? He finds liberal theology, enlightenment philosophy, all these other things, again, that doubt the, uh, uh, the, the authentic statements of Scripture as factual statements. However, another element was Harnock's fascination with Marcion, which he would fully articulate in his 1920s work, Marcion, the Gospel of the Alien God. Now, if you are unaware, Marcion was a second-century heretic who said that, like most Gnostics, that the world that we know was not created by the supreme God, but by a demigod who is wicked. You see, for the Gnostic, created matter was evil because it was created by the demigod, not the supreme God. But the supreme God then, to counteract the mess that the demigod made of of the material world, he sent Jesus to tell that salvation comes from discovering your inner spark which causes you then to denounce the physical world and hopefully one day you will achieve super spirituality with the end goal of being connected to the supreme God. Again, this is the second century. And a lot of this stuff you can see is being repackaged today, right? Nothing's new under the sun, folks. Nothing's new under the sun. But particularly interesting to Harnack was that Marcion created his own canon of scripture. This is what really fascinated him with Marcion. Because Marcion rejected the entirety of the Old Testament. And why? Because he said that the God of the Old Testament was the Demiurge who created this wicked and evil material world. So we can't even trust anything in the Old Testament, so we're just going to throw it out. Now, Marcion's New Testament consisted of an edited version of the Gospel of Luke, and then nine of the 14 epistles of Paul. Now, the reason you're thinking, why why did he just have a redacted version of Luke and then uh, nine of the 14 epistles of Paul and reject the other gospels? Because guess what? There's a lot of Old Testament in those other gospels, and there's a lot of Old Testament in those other epistles, and so he's going to reject those as well, right? Again, these were inspired by the enemy God. We can't trust them.
1: Jordan? Yes, sir. The thought obviously comes more than once
0: that the Christian has an interpreter living within him. Or yes, yeah. his name is the Holy Spirit. That's right. And when man gets tired of playing God and putting his own spin on the things, uh, it's just an amplification of what was said in the garden. Mm-hmm. Satan said, Did God really say? That's right. And what it proves, because Marcion would have said that he had the Holy Spirit, but it was proven out that he didn't by his testimony, right? It's proven out. We already had an established testimony, an established really canon that the church accepted by this time. Now, it wasn't officially formulated yet, but again, he is, he. Uh, in fact, the church would have to establish an official canon because of Marcion to counter counteract his views so Harnack didn't see Marcion though as a heretic but as a revolutionary who sought to uncover what the real content of the Bible was in his words he sought to separate the kernel from the husks that is the kernel of the Christianity the true gospel from the husks of historical religion that is both the New Testament and the early church tradition. We've got to strip everything away, find what's really true here. In fact, his fascination with history led him to follow F.C. Bauer, who was already in this process of being of, of textual criticism, of analyzing the text and seeing what he thought was historically correct. I mean, since the Enlightenment, they brought new tools of discovery in which they could analyze these things in a deeper way. And they're much smarter than the superstitious peoples of the past, they thought. We no longer need to believe in the supernatural because we've got science. We can get to the bottom of what really happened. You can see. This is the, the thought process that Harnack has. So Harnack, through his analyzation of history, proposed that Christianity was something quite different than we know it to be today. He proposed that after Jesus the Christian faith had become polluted by the early church fathers who came under the influence of Greek philosophy, or what he calls acute Hellenization of the church. So at the very beginning, the church, there's no other word to put it, but was bastardized, basically, right? It was, it was uh, polluted. It was corrupted at the very beginning. Now, Harnock claimed this is how we know the true and original New Testament scriptures were because the originals would have been more Jewish in flavor instead of Greek. So all the Greek influences that you find and a lot of these New Testament scriptures, that proves that these are not true and authentic because Jesus was Jewish, and therefore this is too Greek, so we have to deny it. So what's funny is that, for example... He said that John should be rejected because it's so philosophical. There's a lot of philosophical things, and that's that's too Greek. Too Greek. But as we mentioned, I talked with Steve last week about archaeology. Is that just wait a little bit? Just wait a little bit, and if there's a claim made to the, that's contrary to Scripture, just wait a little bit and it will be proven out. And sure enough, what does modern scholarship say about John? It's actually more Jewish than most of the New Testament scriptures. It has more reference, accurate um, references to geographical things that happened in, in uh, Palestine than many of the other books. It's very Jewish. But see, he just made uh, these statements based on the little knowledge that he had at the time in making these kind of statements.
1: Uh, Jordan, mm-hmm. uh, Helen's relation to the church, is that what... Uh... Saint Augustine was accused of before he became converted because he was into some.
0: Yeah, yeah. Basically, basically views that were um, that were contrary, that were really um, more. Like I said, that's what it is. It's like the more influenced with Greek philosophy. Um, Unfortunately, you have to say that Thomas Aquinas with um, the uh, his view of transubstantiation and refining that—that's Hellenization. (laughs) Right, it's 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 Greek philosophy more than it is scripture. But his claim is it's false. Uh, th- this is what, uh, yes, obviously the New Testament was written in Greek. You can't get past that. But does it mean that there were Greek ideas in it, right? And it's almost like there was a conflation uh, between the, the the two ideas. It, well, it was obviously written in Greek, so it had to be you know uh, it had to be Greek in its philosophy. No, that's not the, that's not true at all. You know, David.
1: Such a high, uh, I don't know how to put it. uh, Such a high venue of themselves.
0: Oh yeah, well yeah, because because they 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 have they have uh, believed their own report. I mean they they saw themselves as intellectuals. I have discovered this. Isn't it great? Um, But this is academia. This, right. this, is, this is still true today. All these um, professors and, and doctors and stuff that put out these studies and reports and look at me, I'm an expert, and just believe me blindly, right? That's what the guy's doing at Gateway. Yeah, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, he's... he's I would actually say his is more rooted in ignorance. Uh, but, uh, but, but, yeah, it's, but yeah he, he still has a blind cult following, for sure. That's, that, that's, that's for sure.
1: You can see why he rejected John, too, because uh, the Logos... Right. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Christ being the Logos, which is referencing to the Greek culture, right the idea right. of truth. Yes.
0: Yeah. yeah that, but again, this was this these were concepts. Again, it's one thing for John to take an existing idea, but the idea of the preincarnate Christ is something that you know that that is you can see throughout the Old Testament. Oh yeah. Right. And so so again, it's uh, just just making a new and novel declaration about the nature of Christ. Uh, that's what is what basically he would he was accusing uh, John of doing uh, of, of making these new there's no uh, again he would deny the fact that there was the idea of pre Christ before John basically is is the, is the denial of that. Now regarding his theology he specifically develops what he calls, uh, uh, again, we look at rituals' view of the kingdom of God, but specifically he says the kingdom of God and its coming. But Harnock's view of the kingdom of God is vastly different, as we know from the Orthodox Christian position. Obviously, rituals was different. He says that the kingdom of God is not otherworldly, but is realized in ethical or social terms. In other words, his view is that the kingdom of God is an ideal society or utopia characterized by love of one another. So you can see how he's further defining Ritual's view of the kingdom of God. However, for the first time, Harnock is proposing in clear terms a denial of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And this is a big tenet of liberal theology and what is referred to as realized eschatology. Now, Many of you may recall the song by Belinda Carlisle, "Heaven Is a Place on Earth." Actually, the chorus sums up his theology. That's why I put, I'm going to put it down here.
1: <laughs> oh,
0: baby, do you know what's the, what that's worth? Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. They say heaven, love comes first. We'll make heaven a place on earth. That summarizes his uh, eschatology right there. It does. This is Harnock's view in a nutshell. Heaven or hell is merely what you make of your life here on earth. If you pay it forward and love, 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 then you will achieve heaven here on earth. However, if you are selfish and hateful to other people, you'll create a hell on earth. So you can see Harnack's theology is one centered on the earth as opposed to one centered in heaven.
1: Yeah. Jude, uh, like liberal Jude, like The Orthodox Jews are still waiting for the Messiah. Yes. But the liberal Jews are going to say we're going to usher in the Messianic age. Yes, yeah, yes, so yes. Just like that. Yeah, and
0: during this time, of course, we're not uh, talking about that as much. But um, uh, Albert Schweitzer is uh, is around as a contemporary, and he uh, looked for the search for the historical Jesus. And so the, these are all pursuits in, in different ways. We're just concentrating more specifically. On, on the German church, specifically and its influence on the evangelical church abroad. Uh, but yeah, th- there's different traditions going on at the same time that have the same concept, the same philosophy. But we know that this rejects the truth of Scripture because what, the, what Scripture tells us, the earth is not our home, right. right? Just like the men of faith in the past, as the writer of Hebrews says, We are strangers and exiles here on the earth. And he said, just like the men of old, we are to desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, right? Now, we know that heaven will be on earth one day, right? Heaven and earth will come together, new heavens and new earth. But heaven won't come from our making, will it? And we're not just making a best of a terrible situation right? That's what basically Harnock is saying. Just make the best of a terrible situation and that's heaven. What a pitiful heaven. What a pitiful heaven that is, right? That's right, your best life now. I can't do that, right? We're wasting our time, right? No, heaven will be one where Christ must first come down and in fire will burn this world, purging it of sin, and he will make all things new. He will establish the utopia, not us, right? Now, if Harnack's view of heaven and hell is a a carnal, man-centered one, you can assume his salvation view is similar, which is this. Harnack says that salvation comes in acknowledging, he says, God the Father and the infinite value of the human soul. Now, notice, he uses the Orthodox Christian language by calling God our Father, However, the sense God is our father for Harnack is not the biblical view. His view is that God is father, but to all men. Universal brotherhood, right? And so for Harnack, the true gospel, that kernel of truth, is that God is all our father, and so salvation comes to all. Universalism, right? Now, Harnock says that Jesus' reference to his father was the same as ours. That wasn't unique. So Jesus saying, "God is my father," and He's just like He's your father, and we're all, He's all our daddy. Basically, is what He's saying. There's no uniqueness there. Yeah,
1: right. yeah the, the concept that Scripture teaches is universal neighborhood. Yes, the to treat others as, uh, neighbors. As That's
0: ourselves. right. That's right. The golden rule still applies. Right. Golden rule still applies. But as we're as we're going to see, uh, this is not um, uh, this is not the understanding that Scripture has because. This gets a rid of the need of atonement, right? You can see why this is similar to Schleiermacher. Harnock gets more specific in his rejection of Christ's nature. So again, the goal and the heart of the gospel, according to him, which was taught by Jesus himself, he says, the his actual historical Jesus, was that we all, all we need to do is love, love, love one another. And if we do this, then we will create on earth. That is salvation, right, for him. And again, Jesus lived this life in order to show us. Jordan,
1: that mm-hmm. great statement right there, he mm-hmm. values uh, Jesus Christ because that takes away he's the firstborn among men. That's
0: right. He, he's trying to destroy the uniqueness. Yes, he's trying to destroy the uniqueness of Christ. And so, as we'll see, first of all, as we know, while God is the father of all in a general sense, in a creation sense, right? He created all men. This does not extend to the realm of salvation, right? Harnock sees salvation as possible for all if we love, love, love. However, what Scripture says and teaches us is salvation is given to those whom God the Father has adopted, right? It's a clear distinction. It's not this big mass of, you know, we're all just kind of spirit babies of God kind of weird thing. No, we are adopted because what? We were born cosmic criminals, right? We were estranged. We were the street urchins, right? That really didn't deserve to be in the presence of God because we are, we are filthy. We are totally depraved from birth. Therefore, we were outside the family of God. However, the true gospel, the true good news is that because Christ sacrificed on the cross, as Paul says, We have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. But this means that the adoption is not for all, but given to those whom God has elected to be his sons. Ergo, the reason why it's called adoption to begin with, right? You don't get to choose that, right? No, but that adoption is proven, as Paul says, by the fact that we are both willing to follow Christ in his ways and suffer for his sake. Does Harnack have a view for that? That not only should we just love, 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 but we should suffer in order for Christ's sake? No. Because in his view we shouldn't be suffering at all, right? We shouldn't be suffering at all. We're just love, love, love all the time. Again, it's this utopian um, idealism that's really blind to the way the real world is. Because sin, is, as he says, is merely not loving your neighbor, and so sin is against man and not against God. And of course, if this is true, if your only command is to love, 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 guess what? You get to live your life the way that you want to elsewise. So as long as I love, 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 which is a code word for just accept everyone as they are, then I get to live the way that I want to, right? So you can see this is starting to creep up. This is the way, this is our culture's theology, as you can see, right? Barry?
1: Maybe I've missed it or maybe I haven't heard it yet, Mm -hmm. but uh, how do they address the Holy Spirit?
0: Well, a, a, again, that there is there they. Uh, if you read through their writings, they don't have really uh, don't really address the Holy Spirit. <laughs> they just kind of disregard him. Again, anything. But if you think about it, anything supernatural, um, they're going to discount. So Jesus, they accept because he was a man and he lived on Earth. That's something that was that could be observed, right? Again, again, they're they're following this enlightenment. Um, scientific kind of approach and obviously he had a mission and they, again they want to preserve parts of Christianity they like the idea of a God who is love and, and, and you know, loves his creation so they want to keep that but a Holy Spirit who comes and invades your life and takes over that goes completely against liberal theology it kind of your options, yes it does absolutely because at that point we know that God must violate you Right? The Holy Spirit does violate you. He violates your will and He changes your will. Right? That way you can be changed. So for the liberal theologian, they have no place for the Holy Spirit. No place. Again, but Jesus sent His Holy Spirit to finish in us what He began. Right? So we're going to start to see, as we're going to look at next week, we're going to start to look, as we turn in the 20th century, things are going to change. There's this idealism, you can see, right? If everyone just find a way to love one another, uh, everything will be great. But guess what happens at the beginning of the 20th century? World War I. There's this idealism that man can achieve everything in the Enlightenment. And then man tries to destroy himself. And everything changes. And so, guess what? The, the uh, ide- ideology and philosophy it's going to have to change it in order for them to survive. And so we'll look at that next week. All right. Any other questions or comments? Lonnie? Uh,
1: who does Kenyon fall in after this? Is he considered liberal? Or
0: who, I'm sorry. I couldn't hear you. I'm sorry. Kenyon? Kenyon? Yeah. Yeah, that's where all Roberts. Yeah, yeah, that they, he falls in the fundamentalist group, which is a reaction to liberal theology. We'll touch briefly on that because we're going to touch briefly actually on Machen as well. I wasn't planning on doing it, but just to kind of see that there was an initial reaction to uh, all this coming out. So with Harnock, this is this is spreading to everywhere now. So it, it's not hidden anymore. It was kind of hidden with uh, Schleiermacher and with Ritchell, but now, um, you know, Harnock popularized it. It's, it, it, it's, it's on all the parts, it's on every continent now, you know, or at least the western parts of the continent, continents. And so you're going to start to see that there's going to have to be um, reactions. <coughs> there's going to have to be things that, uh, again, like in Machen's case, he's the voice of reason. He's, he is the voice of the gospel, uh, as as this will start to infiltrate uh, the Presbyterian Church, the mainline Presbyterian Church, and uh, Machen is going to have to be that voice of reason, the voice of the light in the well, darkness. Well,
1: uh, I know Kenyon and Roberts and mm-hmm. uh, Hagen. All them, you know, they, mm-hmm. they have a lot of great teaching.
0: Yes, they do, and they they go about uh, about uh, dress or uh, combating that fu- fundamentalism is something that, for the most part, uh, was an ignorant response to liberalism. And it it really uh, created, as we might look at a a different problem. Uh, Dispensationalism was a very obscure eschatology before the 20th century, and then uh, with with fundamentalism, they're going to take dispensational uh, eschatology and run with it, saying, this is the conservative bent. And so we'll, we'll take a look at that a little bit next week.